Psalms chapter number 3. And uh, I don't know how, how rough of a day you may have had, but at least you're not stuck in Baltimore. Amen. It could always be worse, couldn't it? And we need to pray for her to get home. Amen. Psalms chapter number 3, and we'll read the entirety of this psalm. It's only eight verses. And uh, then I want to share what the Lord's laid on my heart tonight. And, uh, you know, God, God has reason for everything that he does. And, um, you know, there's times that a message is the outgrowth of something that I'm experiencing and going through. And then there's times that God will just drop something sort of in your heart. And uh, this was, was that way tonight. This is not really out of my personal experience, at least not at the moment, not that I can't identify somewhat with what David's experiencing here, but I believe the Lord must have this for uh, some of us here tonight because he gave it to me. Psalms chapter number 3, verse number 1, the word of God says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, say law. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight, Lord. Thank you for letting us be here. Pray that you'd take the holy and errant, inspired and preserved word of God. Lord, wield it as the sword of your spirit. Lord, that's what it is tonight. This isn't a common book. This isn't the invention of man's ingenuity or uh, man's device, but this is the inspired, inerrant word of God. May we give it the reverence that it deserves tonight. And Lord, may we be willing and honest enough to consider and examine ourselves and to embrace and have the word of God engrafted into our hearts through the application of it and our obedience to it. Lord, we'll be sure to thank you for what's done. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I love in the book of Psalms, I'm I'm sort of a, a, a dull-witted person at times, and sometimes you just have to sort of spell things out for me. And one of the things I love about the book of Psalms is some of the Psalms have a little subtitle given to it, a little uh, smaller description of, of what's going on in the Psalm that helps frame for us the context of what we're reading. And that helps somebody like me, because sometimes I'll read something, I'll, I won't understand exactly everything that's going on, but the Holy Ghost was sweet enough to give us a little bit of background, a little bit of help in understanding what's going on. When I read this psalm, I mean, it's apparent to me that the psalmist is struggling. It's apparent to me that the psalmist feels as though he is beset about with enemies. But it's not until we read this little uh, header that's given uh, to this psalm that we begin to understand and be able to paint with full colors what's taking place in this psalm. Now, the first thing we notice when we read it is it is a psalm of David. It says a psalm of David, and then it tells us that this was the occasion through which the Holy Ghost gave this uh, psalm to David. It says a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, if you know anything about the history of David, the king of Israel, you know that this was one of the darkest moments of his entire life. 
David had had a lot of ups and downs in the time that he had reigned over Israel. But I don't imagine there was anything that stung so deeply, that cut so deeply as what Absalom, his son, did in 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're not going to turn there and read all of the story, uh, but to give you a little bit of understanding of what's taking place, the relationship between David and Absalom deteriorates in the book of 2 Samuel. And it's due to the fact that David is unwilling to deal with uh, another one of his sons and, and an evil, uh, sinister crime that that son committed. And so Absalom takes it upon himself to bring justice. And he kills this uh, this son of David uh, that had done this. And uh, when David hears about this, uh, he's angry and Absalom flees into exile to escape the wrath of his father David. Now, what Absalom did was not right. What David did and how he responded was not right. You know, that's often the case whenever things blow up in our life, isn't it? Uh, We always want everything to be nice and neat and tidy. We want somebody to wear a white hat and somebody to wear a black hat. But rarely is that the case. More often than not, it's a messy thing whenever it deteriorates. And that's how things happen with David. So Absalom goes into exile and stays in exile for a period of time. And uh, he's brought back through the intervention of Joab, one of David's uh, generals, and is sort of sort of half brought back into the kingdom. He's allowed to live there. He's not allowed to see the face of his father for a period of two years. But as soon as there seems to be some semblance of reconciliation, between David and his son Absalom. As soon as they sort of seem to patch things up and everything seems to be sort of just tenuously okay, you know, and people start to breathe a sigh of relief, we're told in chapter 15 that Absalom begins to carry out a coup against his father David. He goes and begins to win the allegiances of the children of Israel and their affection. And he does this from the very outset for the purpose of dethroning his father, of stealing the kingdom away from his father, and if he had had his way, of slaying his father and instead sitting upon the throne himself. When we think about this dramatic scene and we think about how a father's heart must have been broken at what took place, you know, especially in light of of David being willing to forgive Absalom and finally being willing to embrace him and, and welcome him back home. And I mean, things seem to be going in a good direction. And then all of the sudden there is a massive betrayal that takes place. We could say this, that betrayal is the context of this song. David has been betrayed and he's not been betrayed by just anybody, but his own son has sought to put a knife in his back and wrestle his throne away from him. Now, when we understand that, it is particularly striking what David says when he comes to the close of this psalm. He describes sort of some of what he's gone through. The verses 1 and 2 describe the, the horror that he feels. And, and uh, you know, uh, verses uh, 3 down to verse number 5 sort of describe the help that he got from the Lord. And when we get to verses 6 and 7 and 8, he's resting in a hope that the Lord has given him. And when you come down to the very end, listen to what David says, verse number 8. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. And then he says this, thy blessing is upon thy people. Here's a man that has been deeply betrayed. Here's a man that has been hurt in unimaginable ways in his heart and his soul and his spirit. And yet when he comes to the close of it all, he says, you know, despite all of this betrayal, the blessing of God is still upon my life. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, blessed through betrayal. Sooner or later in your life or mine, we're going to go through betrayal. We're going to have somebody that we trusted, somebody that we loved, somebody that we thought loved us, somebody that we thought would never hurt us. 
will go out of their way to try to do something, sometimes for the express purpose of hurting us, sometimes in self-interest. It's hard to really parcel out why Absalom did what he did. Did he do it because he loved the throne or because he hated his daddy? I really don't know which is true. But I know in that moment it probably did not matter to David. All that mattered was this uh, magnitude of hurt and pain that he was going through. You know, I thought about this a moment ago, and I I don't often do this, but I I jotted this down in my notes. I thought, you know, what a precious truth it is that when you look at the earthly ministry of our Lord Christ, that he gave an example of how to respond to betrayal to us. You know, you think about it. He didn't have to be betrayed. I mean, I understand for Scripture to be fulfilled, for the Scripture to remain unbroken, but you understand that the same sovereign God that put the prophecies about betrayal in could have left them out. And it could have been that just from day one, those that loved Him kept loving Him, and those that hated Him kept hating Him. And yet we find that a a meaningful, fundamental part of the experience of Calvary was when one that had been His familiar friend lifted up His heel against Him one who he had ate bread with, and when those that he had trusted in and poured the most into scattered and fled away at the moment of his greatest need. Is that not informative and instructive to us? Even our Lord gave us an example of the fact that sometimes you're going to be betrayed. Sometimes you're going to be hurt. Sometimes you're going to have to go through this same experience. And yet I find this, that as Christians, we can experience betrayal through an entirely different prism than how the lost experiences it. They can only respond in sort of a visceral, uh, you know, pursuit of vengeance. But you and I, we can face betrayal with grace in our hearts and with growth through our life. And that's what David does in this passage. I want you to notice three thoughts with me and then I'll be done tonight. Let's say a word first off about his betrayal. Verses 1 and 2, David sort of summarizes what he's going through. And it's interesting. You know, he never says Absalom's name. He never really describes the things that have taken place. He instead, in much simpler, but in many ways concentrated words, describes how this betrayal is affecting him. Notice three things that he says. Notice, number one, the source of the betrayal. He says this, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? We could maybe say it this way. Uh, David says, everywhere I turn, people that I thought would have never rose up against me have rose up against me. I remember one time years ago, and I think Brother Larry's the first person I ever heard say this, but it's, it's, it's struck in my mind ever since then. You know, Brother Larry's dad was in the funeral home business for years and years and years. And uh, somebody, I think, had made the comment to him. If you're interested enough, you can ask him for the story behind it. But it had made the comment, you know, you never bury your enemies. You always bury your friends. And I think I even mentioned that the other day in Brother Richard's uh, memorial service. You know, one of the realities as a pastor that you have to come to terms with is you're not going to bury your enemies. You're always going to bury your friends. But can I go a step further and say this? You're rarely going to be betrayed by your enemies. Betrayal always comes from your friends. It always comes from those that you love. From those that you trust, it's hard for an enemy to betray you because you don't trust them in the first place. And so when we talk about betrayal as an ideal, we need to recognize that though in that moment we, we may just absolutely be thunderstruck by the fact that that person would, would hurt us, that that person that we trusted, that we loved, that we had confidence in would be willing to turn their back on us, to lie about us, to hurt us, to steal from us, to whatever might be the manifestation of that betrayal. It is necessary that we recognize that that's intrinsic to the experience of betrayal. 
I think there's a lot of people. David went his whole life having enemies. I mean, listen, he had enemies in his own home. His own brethren didn't think too much of him. And he went his whole life having enemies. David wasn't bothered by having enemies. He was bothered at the notion that his own son would be one. I mean, we have this sort of, I think, European perspective on royalty and their relationship with their children. And I understand. I mean, I'm sure growing up in the house of a king, you probably uh, didn't have a lot of dad time. But I think this sort of perspective we have on the relationship between uh, royalty, particularly in Bible days, that it was this sort of cold, distant, transactional relationship. I don't think that's true. When you look at David, when Absalom finally dies, Uh, David weeps and he cries and he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. He says, I wish it had been me and not you. This is not just sort of a regal, cold, distant father that's of no interest in his child. Undoubtedly, there had been moments and times where David had bounced him on his knee, where he had held his son, where he had wrestled him and played with him and had all of those magical moments that fathers get to enjoy with their children. And it was that boy, it was that child, that one that he had loved, that he had nurtured, that he had cared for. That's the one that's now calling for his head and baying for his blood. I would say the source of the betrayal was probably one of the most most difficult elements of it. But it doesn't stop there. Notice not only the source of the betrayal, notice the scope of it. He says this, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. You know, one of the things we've learned in our country over the recent years is how much that mob mentality is uh, is 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 a temptation to humanity. And there's people that will go with a crowd because the crowd's just going that way. And the thing that hurt David was that Absalom would betray him, would hurt him, would stab him in the back like this. But, you know, it wasn't just Absalom. There was other people then that David had put his confidence in that rose up and stood with Absalom in that moment. You know, one of the things that, boy, this is a hard thing, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, one of the blessings of betrayal is it'll show some people for what they are. And what I mean is, you know, when somebody sets themselves against us to hurt us or to destroy us, uh, we'll notice those that stand up and applaud them and those that relish and rejoice and revel in it. And David, undoubtedly, he, you know, he was a beloved king. I mean, he was a man that had enemies, undoubtedly. But he was a beloved king. And here, this is probably one of the first moments in his reign that he's having to come to terms with the fact that not everybody loves David. I'll tell you something, not everybody loves Toby. Not, not everybody loves put your name there. <laughs> and one of the things that's hard about betrayal is oftentimes we find out it ain't just those that we thought would in fact it is invariably those that we thought never would and then there's always some that we would have never imagined that joined together with the cause he talks about the source of the betrayal and then the scope of it but then notice what he says in verse number two he says many there be which say of my soul there is no help for him in god say law talks about the source of the betrayal his own son the scope of it his advisors his companions his friends some people for years he had known and and fought in battle with and and bled with but notice also the stakes of the betrayal he said you know what they're saying they're saying god's forsook david they're saying that david's about to forsake god they're watching how i respond to this and he said you know the great danger through this betrayal is it's not just how my frame and state of mind can accept and bear and heal through this. 
But I have my testimony to consider as well. It says there's people watching how I respond and they're going to decide what they believe about God and what they believe about my relationship with God relative to how I respond to this. Let me tell you something, child of God. That this, I mean, this is a tough love thing, but I'm just going to be honest with you. We don't have the liberty to respond any old way we please. We gave that up when we got born again. How you live reflects on Christ. And the stakes at hand. I mean, why does the devil do this? And why does the world do this? What is their goal? What is their aim? What are they driving at? Here's a good rule of life, all right? We live in a news-rich world, don't we? Stuff happening all the time, every which way. Uh, whenever something happens in the news, don't ask yourself, why would they do that? Ask yourself, why would they want me to think that that's what they were trying to do? Then ask yourself, what are they trying to hide while I'm trying to puzzle out what they are trying to get me to think relative to what they want me to think about what they've tried to do? It's all right. I'll tie you in knots here in a sec. You know, the devil's trying to do something. He's not just bored. I understand. We have this idea of the devil like he just wants to burn everything down. And I understand he has that impulse. But you also understand the Bible describes him not as impulsive, but as subtle. You know, when he does this in our lives, what's he trying to do? And David was wise enough to pick up on, hey, there was a lot of folks saying a lot of things about David at this moment. I promise you. But the thing he picks up on is there's people out here saying that God has give up on me. And how I respond is either going to refute or reinforce that idea. I see he speaks about his betrayal in verses 1 and 2. But then I love the way verse 3 starts. I, the, there's, and there's a lot of moments like this in the book of Psalms, but I love this. In fact, let's read verses 1 and 2 into verse 3. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God, say law. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. So I see his betrayal in verses 1 and 2, but then I see his blessedness. Now, he's going to come to the conclusion that he is a blessed person by verse 8. But he really begins to detail this blessedness all the way back in verse 3. And here's what he does. He's noticed the betrayal. He's noticed what people have done and said. But then he turns his attention away from that and on to the Lord. And I'm going to tell you this. If you have your attention constantly fixated, you know one of the tactics of the devil is not just to shock and stun us through hurt and betrayal, but then to corrode away at our testimony and faithfulness by causing an infatuation and fixation on the betrayal that's happened. You say, preacher, what, what can I do? Get your eyes on the Lord. You say, but preacher, they I, I understand what they did. Get your eyes on the Lord. But preacher, what about... No, no, just get your eyes on the Lord. Because the longer that you're fixed on, on the betrayal and not the blessedness, the more corrosive that betrayal will be to your life. David was wise enough to know the sooner he could fix his mind on the Lord, the better off he'd be. So he goes through a series of things, blessed statements that he can make about God that have blessed his soul and blessed his life. Things that had endured the betrayal he had gone through. Notice a few of these. Notice number one, he's blessed by the presence of the Lord. He says, you know, everybody's left me, but you're still here, Lord. <laughs> Nobody wants to listen to me, but I can still talk to you, Lord. Everybody's turned their backs on me. Everybody's rose up against me. Everybody's hurt me. But thou, Lord, you didn't act like the rest of them. 
I like when the Bible uses that word but. It's conjunctive, but it's also transitory in nature. He's, he's going a direction here, and then he says, but... And he pulls himself back up the other direction. He says, you know, this is the way that all that crowd's going. But, Lord, you're not like them. And you say, preacher, somebody hurt me. The Lord didn't. I, that, that's my problem. And I understand. I understand people talk about getting church hurt and it's a thing and everything. But I, I don't have a lot of patience for it. Uh, and the reason why is this. You know, church may hurt you, but the Lord has never hurt you. And if this whole thing of going to church was a matter of you investing in a group of people, you could have probably found a smarter, better-looking group to invest in. That ain't what it's about. It ain't about us just going, gathering together to share in common interests, man. You ought to be here for the Lord. And if you're here for the Lord, you'll be in. You know why? Because I may hurt you. People around you may hurt you. The church as an entity may hurt you. But the Lord will never hurt you. He'll always. He's blessed by the presence of the Lord. He says, you know, I can't hug my boy, but I can hug the Lord. I can't, I can't hug my, my closest friends. They've turned their back on me. But the Lord, he's still present with me. And I just remind you, you say, preacher, you don't know what I've lost. Well, if you're saved, you've not lost the Lord. And you ought to be able to rejoice. He's blessed by the presence of the Lord. Not only that, he's blessed by the providence of the Lord. Now, notice what he says. Thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. Now, this is interesting language because this is a man who's just been struck deeply by the arrow of another person. This is a man who... The blade of his betrayer has found purchase and has dug deep into his soul. And yet he says, thou, Lord, art a shield for me. Here's what the devil wants to say. Well, he ain't much of a shield. But here's what faith would answer back. Would say, if anything made it past the shield, it's because the one holding it wanted it to in the first place. <laughs> it's hard, man. But I'm speaking truth to you. This is going to help you. He was blessed by the providence of the Lord. One of the, you've heard me say this before, but one of the, one of the great, uh, just, just transcendental realities of the book of Job. I mean, one of the things about Job's Christianity, if we want to use that term, his faith, that, that just transcends so many other people is you can go all the way through the book of Job and not once does Job give the devil credit for what he's going through. He always lays it at the hand of God. He says, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. He says, he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Over and over. And Job probably did a lot of things wrong throughout the book of Job. I don't think he's the spotless, uh, you know, stainless lamb that we make him out to be very often. But one thing that he did right is he never looked and gave the devil credit for any of it. He recognized there's a providential God who reigns supreme over all of it. And if I'm going through this, it's because God's allowing it. And David says, you know, the Lord's a shield to me. And I know some things have struck home and I've got some wounds. But it's not because the Lord was unable to shield me. It must be because he's wanting to grow me through this process. Man, he's blessed by the providence of the Lord. Listen to this. He's blessed by praise to the Lord. Here's what he calls the Lord. I love this. He calls him my glory and the lifter up of mine head. I love that, man. Don't you love your Bible? I love that. Uh, because I, I tell you what I need a lot of times. I need a lifter up of my head. That's what I need. I mean, there's a lot of times my head's bowed low and it ain't time for prayer. I'm just discouraged. David says, you know, even in the midst of all this, I can still glory in the Lord. And I can still brag on what he does for me. When I'm feeling down, when I'm disheartened, when I'm discouraged. And David was a man that knew what it was to be disheartened and discouraged. Even in those moments, he could say, you know, the Lord's always present there to give me the encouragement that I need. Some of us struggle because we don't want to receive the encouragement God wants to give us. 
We want to fixate on the hurt and the pain and the wound and not notice. Because if we notice it, we have to let go of the anger, let go of the hurt, let go of the wound and the shield that we feel that it is to us. But, you know, if we're willing to, he'll lift up our head. If we're willing to allow him to, he'll lift up our head. He was blessed just by praising the Lord. You'd be amazed what bragging on the Lord will do for you. When you're hurting, he's blessed by praise to the Lord. Not only that, verse four, he's blessed by prayer to the Lord. He says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice and he heard me out of his holy hill. Selah says, you know, Absalom's took a lot from me. David, very likely at this moment, is is living in the wilderness, fleeing on the run from Absalom. But he says, you know, he's drove me off of Zion's hill, but he ain't drove me off of heaven's hill. He's drove me off of the place of worship. He's drove me away from the tabernacle. He's took away my ability to go in and, and worship the Lord in that public, in that corporate sense. But he's not stopped me from being able to pray and talk to the Lord and be heard by him. I love the faith in what he says. He doesn't just say, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. He says, he heard me. He heard me. He heard the things that I said. Listen, we need prayer. Prayer is a refuge and it's a salve to the soul. It's a powerful thing. It moves realms. And, and don't misunderstand me. I'm not relegating it just to spiritual yoga. But I am saying that there is a, 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 a healing quality to this thing of spending time with the Lord in prayer. Being reminded that he hears. So he's blessed by prayer to the Lord. And then I love what he says, verse 5. Now, before I read this, can I remind you, David's on the run. He's out in the wilderness. And I understand he's a man of war. He's spent a lot of nights sleeping in caves and under the stars. But man, think about what he says in verse 5. He says this, I laid me down and slept. And you say, preacher, that ain't saying nothing. Then you ain't been where he's at. I don't know if I could lay down and sleep. (laughs) I'd lay down and I'd probably, I remember hearing or reading years ago, John Phillips' commentary on Hosea and talking about the sort of schizophrenic nature of the narrative in the latter portion of the book of Hosea. And if you know anything about the book of Hosea, it's sort of it's sort of modeled for us in the, in the tumultuous relationship between Hosea and his wife Gomer, who's unfaithful to him. And John Phillips said that the reason that Hosea is like that, where one minute the Lord's pouring his fury out and then the next minute he's pleading for Israel to come home is because that's what uh, Hosea was going through. He'd roll over on one side and he'd say, that Gomer's so wicked, I never want to see her again, and she's been unfaithful to me. And then he'd roll over on the other side and say, but I love her, and how can I let her go, and how how can I watch this all fall apart? I'd imagine if I was David, I'd be doing that. I'd be laying there uh, under the stars, and I'd roll over to one side, and I'd say, if I get a hold of that Absalom, I'm going to skin him from head to heel. If I get a hold of him, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to make him pay. And then I'd roll over to the other side and say, but he's my baby boy. How can I do that? I'd give up the kingdom if I could just have him again and my home be whole once again. And, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can say what David said. It's saying a lot when your heart's broken to say you could lay down and sleep. Let me say it this way. He's blessed by the peace of the Lord. He gets peace from God that lets him lay down and take all that stuff, take it off his plate, put it on God's plate. And go to sleep saying, now, Lord, I, I don't expect it all to be fixed when I wake up. But I know that you're on the job and I know I can trust you with it. He's blessed by the peace of the Lord. And then he says this, I waked for the Lord sustain me. Now, remember, this is a man who's on the run. He's out in the wilderness. At any moment, Absalom's army could have fallen upon him. And he wakes up and the first thing he thinks is, boy, God's good. I woke up again. 
Now, most of you, first thing you think when you wake up is, ow, hmm, you know, <laughs> followed soon by coffee. Where's coffee? Where's coffee? But the first thing that he thinks is, man, the Lord's been good to me. I wait for the Lord to sustain me. Let's say it this way. He is blessed by the protection of the Lord. He says, you know, God watched over me once again. I know you don't want to hear this any more than I want to hear it when I'm hurting. But it always could have been worse. And the reason it's not is the mercy of God. You say, preacher, that don't make me feel better. No, but it ought to make your faith better. I don't expect it to make you feel better. But it ought to make your faith better. And it ought to make you rejoice in the Lord and recognizing. Hey, we should never begrudge recognizing the faithfulness of God. Say, but preacher, that don't make all my problems go away. No, it's not going to make them go away. But it will probably better equip you to face them. And to trust in the Lord. So I see his blessedness in verses 3 through 5. But then notice, and I'll be done tonight. Notice his belief. You know, relationship with the Lord always leads us to a deeper, stronger, greater faith. That's the purpose of it. That's why God interacts with us. If, if God didn't want to develop faith in us, he would have saved us and then immediately took us to glory. But he leaves us here and lets us go through these things that he might bolster and strengthen and develop our faith and, and, and cause to be manifest uh, in, in us the life and identity of Christ. And that's what happens with David here. In verse number 6, we see his faith sort of a bubbling to the top, and he makes some statements that are bold. Notice what he says. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. Now, this is the guy, I mean, I don't have to go far back, right? Let's just go back, I, oh, I don't know, about four verses. And he says, many there be which say of my soul there is no help for him in God. Verse 1, he says, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. But now he's spent some time rejoicing in the Lord, getting encouragement. And you come down to verse 6, he's ready to take on hell with a water pistol. He says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Notice, number one, the courage of his belief. He says, you know, I can handle this. I can handle this. Sounds to me like he found strength in the Lord. Now he, he says, I mean, at the beginning, he's saying, now, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to bear this. But he spends some time with the Lord and is reminded of God's goodness and blessings in his life. And now, verse 6, he's saying, you know, I believe God's got this under control. And I believe by his grace and with his strength and with his help, I believe I can whoop this. I believe I can handle this. I see the courage of his belief. Then verse 7, I see the confidence of his belief. And what I mean by that is not his, uh, you know, uh, the, his, his braggadocia or, or his, his uh, you know, braveness. But I, I mean why he believes the Lord. Verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Now, there's two ways we could read this. We could read this as some sort of affirmation of faith on his part. But I don't think that's what it is. I don't think it's an affirmation of faith. I think it's a review of what God's done in his life. Now that he's reminded of what God has done, he's saying, you know, Lord, I'm going to ask you to save me. I'm not going to try to fix all this. I'm not going to try to destroy Absalom. I'm not going to try to whoop him. And by the way, uh, Absalom was slain, but it was contrary to the command of David. David never did try to take it in his hand to kill Absalom. He told Joab to deal gently with the young man. For his sake. In other words, he turned it over to the Lord and left it with the Lord. And why could he do that? Well, because God had already smoten all of his smoten. That's a good one, isn't it? Smitten all of his enemies. Smoten, smoten, smitten. God had already smited all of his enemies. 
in the past. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, the Lord's took care of my problems before. I believe he can do it again. Uh, we, we don't give God, I don't even want to say the benefit of the doubt because that implies the notion that God's not earned it. We don't even give him credit where it's due. He has time and again shown himself to be faithful and sufficient. You say, preacher, but nothing could heal this hurt. Yeah, God can. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because he's done it for you and for me and for all of us a million times over. I see the confidence of his belief, but then I see the comfort of it. He says this, verse 8, salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Salvation in this context, I don't really think he's talking about righteousness being imputed. I think he's talking about being saved from Absalom's rage and fury, from, from the danger. He's talking about God sparing and preserving him. And here's what he recognizes. Uh, only God can spare and save me. He said, now, preacher, I'm not out in the wilderness running from enemies that are trying to dog me down. I'm not going through that, no. But let's just simplify it a little more. David says, the only one that can fix this problem is God. So I'm going to leave it in God's hands. For his problem, it was a very literal, real, physical, present enemy trying to slay him and take his life. But what you or I are struggling with may be something that is not quite as explicit and external. We may be struggling with the pain. We may be struggling with forgiveness. We may be struggling with trust, whatever it might be. And David recognizes this, you know, as has always been the case, God has solved my problems. And this problem is no different. It may be different on scale, it may be different on severity, but it's not different in nature. And the same God that was capable then is capable now. And in fact, David would probably admit that every time he had tried to fix his problem, he only made it worse. So here's what he says. It's God's proprietary jurisdiction, this matter of salvation. He says, I'm going to trust him with it. And then he makes this statement, thy blessing is upon thy people. It's almost like he says this, you know, uh, all that I've been through has not changed how good God's been to me. And it's not my job to straighten them out and to fix them. It's God's job. So here's what I can do. I can let him deal with the betrayal and the burden. And I can rest in his blessing in my life. And I can trust in the Lord. Uh, David had learned as a young man that the battle was the Lord's. Now he's learning the burdens are the Lord's too. That even the battles you can't fight with a sword and with a spear. Even those things are in God's control. And so the question is this. We're all going to go through hurt, burden, betrayal, sorrow, suffering. You know, whatever it is you're going through, we're going to experience those things. The question is, do you realize how blessed you are in it? And are you willing to allow your belief, your faith to be strengthened and grow through it? There's a world watching us. There's many there be that say there's no hope for his soul in God. David said, I, I, I owe God too much. I owe him too much to turn my back on him. I'm going to let him grow me through this. Let's bow our heads together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. I invite and encourage you, if God dealt with your heart about any matter, to meet him in this altar and let him have his will and way in your life. We oftentimes, in the midst of, of suffering and affliction, Sometimes, man, we can get awful used to having those problems there. Sometimes we grow dependent on them. Sometimes they allow and excuse our behavior, and sometimes they justify the way we live and the things we do. I wonder if you love the Lord and trust the Lord enough to give your burdens, your hurts, your wounds to Him, and to say, now, Lord, do with these as you see fit. 
and bring glory out of my life to you through it. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. I ask it in his name.